today's Bible reading is just Mark 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many heard him. Uh, many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Wherever you and Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went outside and preached that people would repent. They drove out many demons and, and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the other prophets a long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had been given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of the Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly troubled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that um, all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot when all the towns um, from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that will take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. Um, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all they saw, um, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the, about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gesereji and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they, had, they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Thanks, Naomi, for, for the uh, awesome long reading. Okay, um, now it is time for the sermon, and Reverend John will come up and give us today's sermons. Hey guys, um, so we're covering another big chunk today. So if you have any questions or um, I've kind of skimmed over things that you're interested in, just let me know in Q&A and uh, we'll jump into a lot of it. Um, this will be a pretty interesting study for Bible study as well, just because there's a lot in here that I'm actually not touching on. Um, so maybe some of the questions you have will be like more of a Bible study question, but feel free to ask them, horsleypark.church slash QA, and I will do my best to answer. All right, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for giving us your word. Thank you for the time that we can spend today, um, just kind of uh, quieting our hearts and our heads uh, to be able to understand it. We pray that your spirit will make clear your word to us and what you'd want us to do in response to it. Help us to be followers of you all the days of our lives and help us to see more clearly who you are and who Jesus is today. Amen. <clears throat> Sorry. So today 
we have a tale of two banquets. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief and the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light and the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like this present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. That's how Charles Dickens starts his novel, The Tale of Two Cities. I've got no idea where the rest of the novel goes because I haven't read it, but you can guess from the intro, a lot of the themes that are in that novel. If you've read the book, feel free to correct me on anything that I misassume here. But basically it pictures an exaggerated the long list of absolute extremes against each other in that intro. So there's the best and the worst. There's the wisdom and foolishness. There's hope and despair. And it assumes that they can just sit next to each other. It was best, both the best of times and the worst of times. So that's life in the times of his story. But not only in the times of his story, he says the period of his story was like the present period as well. And so my guess is that you could probably describe your present period to my present period in those same words. It's mixed with the best things and the worst things. You laugh and you cry on the same day. You love your spouse or your brother or your mother and you hate them as well. And so it really describes the Christian life too. It's a world of dichotomies. We're blessed beyond all measure and then we're persecuted and hated. We have the secrets of the kingdom of God revealed to us, like Mark tells us, but at the same time, we're so foolish. Both extremes are true descriptions of the Christian. You wouldn't think they belong together, but they sit really nicely together. And so it's a very apt description of this passage today. Today we get to explore this interesting and kind of perplexing aspect of our faith where polar opposites can sit next to each other and be true. Today we're going to struggle with how as followers of Jesus, we're diners at two banquets. The first banquet, it starts as Jesus returns to his hometown and he teaches in the synagogues as he's been doing all throughout Mark. And we hear the familiar response of the people. They were amazed. Where did his wisdom come from? How can he do these miracles? But then something new, because he's not unknown here in his hometown. The people say, hang on, I know him. He's the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. And they go from being amazed by him to looking down on him. It says they took offense at him. They couldn't piece together how the miracle worker could be the carpenter as well. A prophet is not without honor, verse 4, except in his hometown, amongst his relatives, and in his own home. So he did a few miracles there, but ultimately 
in his hometown, he leaves rejected. Then from verse 7, after his own rejection, his own rejection and his own dishonor, he gathers the 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits and he sends them out two by two to preach and to drive out demons, to do the very things that he was doing and possibly then face the very same rejection he just faced. So it's strange he sends them off, tells them not to take anything that might make the journey a bit easier. So don't take food, don't take money, don't take an extra tunic to keep warm. It doesn't really tell us why exactly he tells them to go without these things, but the common perspective on it is so that they would go out and rely on God's provision. And that could be right because faith is a really big theme in Mark. And it was a really big theme in the passage that we looked at um, last week. But I don't think it's really hinted at in these verses in particular. What I think might be a better understanding is to view it on the backdrop of Jesus' rejection in his hometown and his instruction to his disciples about how to handle their own possible rejection. So he sends them out with nothing but the gospel that he's given them and the ability to perform miracles as signs for the um, authenticity of this, this, this gospel so that if they reject the disciples, there's no doubt that they're actually rejecting Jesus because that's the only thing that they've gone out with. So it's the only thing for people to take offense at and to reject and then so like Jesus again was treated in his hometown, he says that if they reject him, what they should do is just dust off their feet and go. So from verse 12, they take nothing with them and they go out and proclaim the gospel and they cast out demons and they heal the sick. And it might be implied that they're successful as well, maybe. And maybe many people accepted them and maybe many people repented but it doesn't actually say. So the question is left hanging, were they rejected? And Mark doesn't really answer it. He finishes the story in verse 30, saying the disciples returned and told Jesus about all that they did and taught, but no indication of success or failure, which is interesting and a little frustrating. But in between them leaving and verse 30, Mark inserts this seemingly unconnected story about John the Baptist's death. So it's interesting and it's frustrating and now it's a little confusing as well. From verse 14, news of Jesus had already made its way to Herod and he was shocked and maybe even frightened that John the Baptist, who he killed, had been raised to life again. And that was the power behind Jesus' miracles. That's what Herod was afraid of. John the Baptist is back and he's doing miracles. And then we enter a long tangent about how John the Baptist was killed. Herod was afraid because he'd imprisoned John, because John spoke against Herod, marrying, his, marrying the wife of his brother, Philip. Herod still liked John the Baptist, but his new wife, Herodias, held a grudge against him for saying those things. And so she wanted to kill him. But she couldn't because Herod wouldn't allow it. Because Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. 
but on Herod's birthday, he throws a huge banquet. And Herodias's daughter came in and danced for all the guests. And Herod was so pleased with her dancing that he vowed in front of all the guests to give her anything she wanted at all, up to half his kingdom. She could have basically chosen to receive anything. But taking the opportunity, Herodias tells her daughter to ask for, to ask for John the Baptist's head. And although he was greatly saddened by doing this, Herod cuts the head off John the Baptist because of his vow in front of all the guests. So it's a pretty interesting story of like political power struggles and uh, it's seemingly totally irrelevant. But there's only two passages in Mark that are not about Jesus in the whole book. The first one was right at the start of the book where it spoke about John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. And the second one is right here where it speaks about John the Baptist and his death. And both times, it actually is talking about Jesus, just indirectly. The first time, it pictures John as a forerunner for Jesus' coming. And now, it's actually picturing John the Baptist as a forerunner for Jesus' death. And you can see the parallels between Jesus' death and John's death here. Both John and Jesus are held captive by political tyrants, maybe, who seem to both fear and respect them. Here it's Herod, later it's Pilate. But eventually their death comes as they succumb to social pressure. Both John and Jesus die silently as victims of political corruption. Both John and Jesus' death are chosen, both, sorry, both John and Jesus are chosen to die despite there being a better choice, a much better choice. Here it's half the kingdom would be a better choice. Later it's Barabbas would be a better choice. And most obviously both die as righteous and innocent victims and have their bodies laid in a tomb by their disciples. So why does Mark sandwich this story about John's death in the middle of the disciples going out? Jesus, having just been rejected in his own hometown, sends out his disciples to preach and do miracles, following his path, doing what he did. So we wonder if they'll be rejected like he was as well. But at the end of the story, we never find out. It's left ambiguous. But Mark puts in this story here about John the Baptist to show us that the path Jesus will go down is not just rejection, but eventually an unfair death. This story about John, which is really about Jesus, is the implicit answer to our question. Maybe this sending out of the disciples was a success. Maybe there was no rejection. But at the end of Jesus' path lies an unfair death. And if the disciples, even if they didn't today face rejection, if they follow him long enough, they will face rejection and they'll face even worse. So that's banquet one. It's filled to the brim with rejection, with despair and with death. The second banquet, verse 31. After the disciples return and, Jesus tells, uh, and they tell Jesus about their journey, Jesus sees that they've been exhausted and there's been a lot going on and that they need some rest. 
So they set off on a boat to go to a quiet place. Literally a wilderness place. Remember that for later. But all the people around them see and they follow them on foot, running ahead of them. Maybe they knew where Jesus was going or maybe Jesus sees such a massive crowd following on land that he has the boat pull over to where they are. But either way, he lands and he says he has compassion on them. Remember that for later as well. He had compassion on them because of their lostness or their aimlessness. They were like wandering sheep, needing a shepherd to care for them. And so he teaches them. He provides them what they needed for hours upon hours, it seems. Because in verse 35, it tells us now it's late in the day. And the disciples realize that the people also need food. And so they suggest that Jesus lets the people go off into the villages to get food because there must be too many of them to feed. And Jesus' answer seems rude or at least nonsensical. You give them something to eat, he says. But Jesus can see the crowd. He knows how many there are. And so do the disciples who reply, should we buy 200 denarii or half a year's wages worth of food? Obviously, the disciples are right. Even if they had that amount of money, which I would think they probably didn't have, you can't spend half a year's wages on one meal. So what's Jesus talking about? He can't just be oblivious to what's going on and to how much food they have and to how many people there are. I think Jesus might still be talking about teaching. He was teaching them, which is what sheep without shepherds needed the most. And the disciples come to him with another need. But Jesus is focusing still on the first need. And like the first half of this chapter, where Jesus sends the disciples out to do what he's doing to follow his path, he does it again now. See all these sheep without shepherds? You give them what they need. You be their shepherd, like I'm their shepherd. And we know that's the path that the disciples take after Jesus leaves, and that's the path of all disciples from then until now. So that's a bit speculative. It could be making a lot out of little details, but that's kind of how Mark and how most of the Bible is written. There's a lot of richness in the Bible for us to explore because there's infinite riches in God. In the next part of this chapter, there's another weird line which will kind of unlock a lot of significance for us. So it doesn't explain exactly why Jesus had this weird response in, in the text. But in the context of the first part of the chapter, I think that's what's going on. So the disciples don't really get what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus moves on from their need for a shepherd to their physical need for food. And he prepares a banquet. The disciples give him what bread and fish they have. Jesus sits them down, he blesses the bread and he breaks it and gives it to the disciples to hand out to the others. And everyone was filled. And in the end, they had more food after the banquet than they had before it. 
even though Mark squeezes in right at the end, there were 5,000 men. That's the end of the banquet. But that's not the end of the whole story of the banquet. We need to keep reading the next part as well. He sends the disciples off to Bethsaida, and he dismisses the crowd, and he goes to a mountain to pray. Then evening comes, and he sees the disciples struggling on the sea. And verse 48, he walks on the sea, but he intends to just pass them by. This is the other weird line. What, what a strange thing to do, and what kind of a mean thing to do, actually. But they see him, and they think he's a ghost, and they're terrified. But he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And he gets on the boat, and the wind dies down. And verse 51, it says, they were amazed because they didn't understand about the bread. They didn't understand about the banquet that just went on. So on the surface, it sounds like they still didn't understand that Jesus had all this power. But there's that weird line. He meant to pass them by. It really stands out and it really doesn't make sense. Like when Jesus said to the disciples, you feed them. That phrase, he meant to pass them by, connects back to a really important event in the Exodus where Moses asks to see God's glory. But because it would have been too dangerous for him to see God's face, God says, I'll show you my glory by passing you by. And he says, when I pass you by, I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence, which is Yahweh, or it's translated as I am. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so maybe you're starting to see some of the connections. So as Jesus passes them by, he intends to actually show them the glory of God or show them his own glory. And he says to them in verse 50, it is I, or literally, I am. And they see it and they hear it, but they don't understand because they still didn't understand about the bread. The bread wasn't just about Jesus' power. But it was another sign that Jesus is God, just like the walking on water. Jesus literally gave them bread in the wilderness. And that should have reminded them of the bread or the manna their ancestors received in the wilderness, where they had more than enough to eat every day because God had compassion on them and he cared for them like a shepherd. So at the end of the chapter, when they land in Gennesaret, and it says the people recognised him in verse 54, they didn't really recognise him, or they didn't fully recognise him. So far in Mark, not even the disciples have recognised him, but only the demons. And that's banquet two. Filled to the brim and overflowing with compassion and provision and glory. So we have two banquets, 
that the disciples of Jesus and anyone who follows Jesus will eat at. A banquet of despair and a banquet of compassion. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. So is it worth it? Is it worth being a disciple of Jesus if this is what we have to look forward to? Sure, the second banquet is amazing. To follow God, to follow a God that's full of compassion is a, a huge blessing. But is it worth having to eat at the first banquet as well? To follow Jesus down a path of rejection and suffering and even death. Well, I don't I don't think that's quite the choice. Like the period that Charles Dickens wrote about, the late 1700s, and like the period that Charles Dickens lived in, the mid-1800s, and like the present time, and I'm guessing pretty much like every other time in history, it always is the best of times and the worst of times. Life in this world is simply those two extremes. You have the highest highs and you have the lowest lows. I'm sure you've been through it yourself, and I don't have to convince you of it. And probably right now, many of us are in our lowest lows, and maybe some of us are luckily in our highest highs. Choosing to Jesus, choosing to follow Jesus, isn't a life, isn't choosing a life of dual extremes. The life of dual extremes is just life in general. So what is it then? What are we choosing when we choose to follow Jesus? What's this passage saying about Jesus and following him in these extremes? You might expect that choosing to be with Jesus would mean that you get the highs without the lows. That would be a pretty easy choice. But that's just not the world that we live in. It's not the world that Jesus came into. It will be the world when it's made new, but it's not the world right now. Right now, when you choose Jesus, you don't get to escape the bad. What happens instead is that he's with you in the good and the bad. Notice that Jesus is actually in both banquets. And not only in, but at the center of. In the first banquet, he's there represented by John as his forerunner in despair and in sadness and in death. And he's not just there comforting those going through despair and sadness and death, but actually he's walking through it himself. He walks first through despair and sadness and death, and he actually also walks furthest. He's gone through the deepest of rejections and the deepest of deaths. And as Christians, we're just following him. But the act of following him brings purpose to it all. By following him, there's a goal for the rejection and the suffering and the death, and there's an end to it as well, but only when you follow Jesus through it. Suffering will come whether you're a Christian or not. Maybe you get a little less suffering if you're not a Christian, but that's not guaranteed. What is guaranteed is that suffering is not in vain if you're following Christ through it. There's a purpose to it and there's an end to it. 
Jesus has shown there's an end to it. And he's also there at the center of the second banquet. He's the one that brings compassion and he's the one that provides. And he reveals the glory of God to us. He brings higher highs than could ever be experienced without him. So this tale of two banquets isn't unique to Christianity. It's just a part of the experience of the world. The choice you have with following Christ isn't a choice to avoid the first banquet, but to go through it with purpose and through it with an end point and to enjoy the second banquet to the fullest. Okay, and now it is time for Q&A. So the first one is, why were the disciples hard? Hardened in verse 52. Yeah, that's a, it's like another one of those interesting lines. <laughs> um, and I'm guessing just because of all the Exodus references in this section, so you've got Jesus declaring I am, passing them by the wilderness and the bread. Um, and there's a few other kind of little hints as well. I'm guessing that that is almost putting the disciples into the, the kind of camp of the outsiders because Pharaoh in the Exodus, it was Pharaoh's heart that was hardened uh, towards God as they were escaping. So I think that that kind of just, it's showing that the disciples haven't gotten it yet. They don't understand who Jesus is. And in that sense, they're a bit like Pharaoh, which is, which is a pretty like serious um, like indictment on them. Uh, later on, they figure it all out. But yeah, I think at this point, they're, they're a bit more like Pharaoh in the Exodus who had his heart hardened towards God. So I think that's the reference. Mm. There's another question, but... Um... Yeah. Oh, thanks. Why can't Jesus do miracles in his hometown? Right. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's the start of the passage, I think. Mm. Um, and it is, a, it is like an unusual thing. So I think when you first read it, you just, you think it's, I don't know, like my brain when I first read it, I mm. thought it was because uh, they didn't have faith in him, so he couldn't do anything for them. Mm. I think that's, that's probably like what a lot of people that's probably the common understanding, but I don't think that makes sense because like God's, God's power doesn't rely on us. Like God's still God, even if people don't believe in him, don't have mm. faith in him. Um, and Jesus has done plenty of miracles in the past. And it's like the, say when he calmed the storm, like when he was asleep, the disciples woke him up, calmed the storm. Mm. And, they, and he said to the disciples, you don't have faith, even mm. though, they didn't have faith. He still calmed the storm. Yep. So he can clearly do miracles without people having faith in him. Mm. What I think it's saying is that um, it's more like the, the situation where the woman who was bleeding came up to him mm. and he said, your faith has made you well. So as in her faith in Jesus' power, her understanding of his power drove her to come to him for healing. And in that sense, her faith healed her. And so I think that's like this. These people, like they saw Jesus' miracles and they were like, nah, we're going to reject you. We know you're just the carpenter, you're the son of Mary. And so I think what it's saying is like no one bothered to come to him. Like he, he had no honour. People looked down on him and no one asked him to heal them. Mm. And so he didn't heal very many people. Just a few sick people came to him and he healed them. Mm. So I think it's saying that 
Yeah, like they, they just like Jesus was right in their midst. Like imagine like what you would ask Jesus if he was right here. Like what things would you change about your body or your life situation or whatever? And he was right in their midst there. And they were just like, no, mm. no thanks. Like you go, go like get out of here. I'm, mm. I'm just going to do my own thing. So I think it's just talking about the insanity of the people mm. in his hometown who would reject him. Yeah. Even though he's like, God, he's doing miracles right for them. So. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Uh... Um, for that, was think. there anything else that popped up, Linz, or That's okay. all there is. Yeah. Yep. Well, hopefully, if other people ask questions, they got lost or something, just mm. it, like Facebook me or put it on Padlet tomorrow when hopefully this problem disappears. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully, that... that was all the questions. But if it wasn't, like, get me some other way. Yeah. All right. Thanks, uh, John.